Hello and welcome to the newest edition of Pro Pharma Talks. Today we are going to be discussing COVID-19 with children. But before we get into that, I'd like to remind you to review and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the newest edition of Pro Pharma Talks. My name is Alex Hernandez. On the other line is Dr. Craig Stern. And uh, today our topic is about COVID-19, but this time how it affects children. See, in the media, um, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not we should send kids back to school for the upcoming school year. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate. For some reason, there's a debate about it. But whatever the case is, we need to understand how COVID-19 actually affects children. Ain't that right, Dr. Stern? Absolutely true. And um, while the the back to school has now become a political issue. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of data. Uh, there's only the fear of keeping the kids safe. So it's all about safety. And so right. as a result of that, we're trying to make sure that everything is safe. And with so little data, we have to follow what adults do, which is essentially washing your hands, wearing a face covering, social distancing, and trying to ensure the fact that um, if they, uh, they're not transmitting to their family, to their grandparents, to friends, et cetera. That's and it's, a, it, it's all the things we expect kids to do, right? Kids will, of course, they'll socially distance. <laughs> of course, they're not going to cough and sneeze on each other. And they're going to wash their hands every time they go out to the playground, right? I mean, this is expected. <laughs> Don't your kids do that, Alex? No. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Well, but, I mean, it, it, there's expectation and then there's hope, I guess. And I guess a lot of people just don't want their kids at home anymore. <laughs> well, let's take this to a higher level because our business is healthcare, uh, specifically mm -hmm. therapeutics. Um, but we need to put this in context. And that is, there's been a general discussion around um, that kids seem to um, get the disease in a less severe uh, form than adults, that is kind of surprising because typically in other viral illnesses, children get it worse than adults. Uh, for example, measles. Um, right. But um, the, the other part of it has been the discussion of kids being asymptomatic but still carrying the virus that they can carry to uh, elderly adults, comorbid, uh, individuals, individuals who are immunocompromised, and there's uh, there's uh, uh, good data out there to demonstrate that they can transfer it, as well as data to demonstrate the kids you get the disease. So we're going to try and talk about it from a science level rather than all of the issues that have gone on that have kind of politicized this issue and right. others. Um, our basis is to go back to where the science is. So, so what is it that we do know for sure? Because there's a lot with COVID-19 we still don't know. But as far as children goes, what do we know right now? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. When we talk about kids, let's understand that we're talking about babies. We're talking about kids. We're talking about um, uh, uh, teenagers. And by, by definition, uh, anyone who is less than 18 years old, uh, between 10 and 18, is an adolescent. So we're dealing with that 
that uh, a population between zero age and about 18 years old, the rest uh, uh, moves into adult. And when you do that, about 22% of the population is children. So in our world right now, in the United States, we're looking at about one-fifth of the population being children. Uh, that includes infants, children, adolescents, this group less than 18 years old. And when you look at the reported cases that the CDC has reported for kids, you see that the reported cases for the COVID-19 is slightly less than 2%. It's about 1.7%. And we think that that's a, a pretty good number for the U.S., because it is consistent with what the Chinese saw and what they reported. I'm not talking about all of this politicizing arguments about what the, um, uh, what the Chinese did, reported or otherwise. I'm talking about the fact that um, the Chinese uh, did report data and it was about 2% for reported cases in kids. So right, this, right. we've got something and we can relatively substantiated because uh, uh, other countries have come up with the same issue besides that with regard to uh, uh, their kids and, and what they've seen. Well, what kind of symptoms have they seen? The, the children, did you mention that? Well, before I get to symptoms, uh -huh. understand if you've got this universe of kids, 20, a, a fifth of the, of the country, a fifth of the United States, mm -hmm. which ones are getting sick? Now, the bad news is, is that there aren't that many studies in kids. One, because there aren't that many cases of it. Two, because we're not testing for kids. So we really don't know what the universe looks like. But based on what we do know, about 60% um, uh, of the cases uh, from the COVID-19 are in the 10 to 17-year-old. So about 60%, two-thirds. The, um, and, and these are approximate numbers, but effectively then um, in the kids who are under one year old, there's about 15%. Uh, between one and four years old, it's about 11%. And five to nine years old represent 15. So about 60% in, um, in the little bit older group of 10 to 17. And then 15% or 11% for the others. That gives us an idea of who's getting sick. By the way, from a, a treatment standpoint, that also gives us an idea because some of the more severe illness from the COVID-19 in kids occurs in that bit, uh, uh, older age group. It may have to do mm -hmm. with, um, with uh, uh, the data. It may have to do with testing, but at least we've got something because in kids, we have very little data to try and, and expose things to. Right. So how do we increase those testings with uh, with children? Like, um, well, it is hard. The, is the focus just primarily on adults right now? Just to, the idea is that it's going to curb it somehow and the children won't be able to? Well, the vast majority of it, obviously, 98% of it is in adults. So yes, okay. um, we're behind on testing. We are not as far along as other countries are on a per capita basis on testing. Italy is certainly farther along on a per capita basis than we are, uh, et cetera. Uh, but bottom line is you asked the question about symptoms because mm -hmm. in kids, because we don't have a lot of testing, 
we have to define the illness based on symptoms. Um, when you don't have all the data to identify the population at risk, you have to look at symptomatology. And the basic symptomatology is that we're dealing with fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Um, what, the, what the reason for that is, is unknown. What the impact of that is also unknown. So just, I mean, clearly it's bad. We're not, we're, nothing here is being denied. But why kids show fevers, why they show coughs, why they show a shortness of breath, that isn't quite clear. It isn't quite clear why this is less than an adult, but we do have to put in perspective because um, at the end of the day, people have talked about the fact that kids don't get as much, but it's on a percentage basis. And we need to be aware of that. So at least right. let me add to what this is. 73% uh, okay. of pediatric patients experience fever or cough as compared to 93% in adults. They still get it, certainly a lot less, but they still get it. The other part is that um, hospitalization occurred in 5.7% of kids versus 10% in adults. So when you look at that, kids are still being hospitalized, they still have cough and fever, but they, the um, illness seems to be at a much less severe uh, in, uh, uh, issue than it is in adults. But it's important mm. for us to realize it still occurs and that the percentages right. when we say it's less, it's still not insignificant when you look at kids. Is it, is it, <coughs> oh, bless you. Sorry. Um, is it, is it possible at all that the virus just shows empathy towards children? Oh yes, viruses, <laughs> viruses are little bits of DNA and yeah. they certainly have an anthropomorphic idea of sympathy, of uh -huh. um, culture, of religion, of social contact. Yeah, right. Um, now you're just being facetious now. Now I'm being Come facetious. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, uh, when you use those big words, I really have to uh, deal, deal with it. But I mean, clearly. Um, but it, it just awful. seems like it. Yeah. And it, I, it, just, it just seems like it. And I think because kids get exposed, well, normally kids get exposed to the surrounding area, like when they're in a playground, those are usually pretty dirty places. And um, they get exposed to a lot more. Is it possible their immune system is a lot stronger at a younger age? Well, the, the, the key issue about kids is, is they don't have as well developed of an immune system as do adults. And the reason mm. is that as people go through age, you get infected with different viral, bacterial uh, type of infections. And as a result of that, you build immunity, you build antibodies um, to it, both circulating antibodies uh, as well as tissue antibodies, uh, T cells and tissue, B cells and blood. And so an adult has been exposed to all of this, so has a much uh, bigger um, immune system than children. So in general, that's not uh, the answer. What, what is going on is that uh, kids, for some reason, don't seem to take this as severely. Um, I have estimated, this purely an estimate, that a lot of the symptomatology that we're seeing in COVID-19 is not unlike what you see in, a, in what's known as a cytokine uh, flood. It's um, a particular part of the immune system 
um, of, it, of, um, of adults, the cytokine mm -hmm. flood, and we see it in people who have cancer, acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, and others, and it's very severe, and it can be deadly. Um, and, and many of these symptoms, unfortunately, look exactly like what that is and what's going on. And there are studies now trying to determine, you know, what the impact is. Kids, for whatever reason, don't get it. And that, that makes it more complicated because we need to talk about treatment. <laughs> and you can't have treatment if you don't have a clear indication of what you're actually treating. <laughs> right. In one hand, it's reassuring. On the other hand, it's completely confusing and no one can understand it. <laughs> well, let me talk about treatment for a minute because that's- Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, okay. The, because there's so little data in kids, we have to extrapolate what kids should be doing to what adults are doing. So as we've already indicated, the same thing that adults have to do with regard to hand washing, face covering, social distancing, uh, et cetera, those things need to occur for kids as well, whether they're in school, whether they're not in school, or otherwise uh, being around people that are not, they're not living with, they're not close to, et cetera, for what goes on. And that becomes an issue. Um, right. And the kids can transfer it. Even the mayor of Atlanta, one of her children was asymptomatic, but had the virus transferred mm -hmm. it to her, transmitted to her husband, Etc. And so this can occur. It, it, it's real, and it, there's data to show it. Um, so given that the, they are doing at least something of the same thing of what happens, then we are in a world where kids need to maintain the same level of prevention that they did before the COVID-19 virus. And by that, I mean all of their vaccinations, their shots that they would normally have, we need to make sure that they're getting them because without it, what we are going to see is a, um, a renewal of some serious diseases, mumps, chickenpox, rubella, um, issues that we don't want to see again. We thought that we had controlled it. We thought that well, effectively we had wiped it out with vaccinations, but if people aren't going to their pediatricians, are not going and making sure that the kids have appropriate vaccinations and well care kind of visits, what we can see is that uh, the issue would return. And even if everybody is not getting it, so we have some herd immunity for it, then kids who have had their vaccines, kids who have not, can still make people very sick and that, that can be a significant problem for the kids. So we need to be aware of that. Prevention, prevention, prevention. Have kids get their their vaccinations. Okay. Yeah, and um, at, at this time, um, are are a lot of pediatricians still taking um, appointments and allowing for vaccinations and all that? I can imagine it's more important now than than it ever was before. It is more important now than ever before. I certainly can't speak for all pediatricians, but. The American Pediatric Association and others have all talked. The kids still need to get their shots with all of the appropriate safety measures, but they still need to get it so that with masks and with, um, with uh, washing hands, social distancing, they can still go in and still in certain clinics, get their shots for what they need, et cetera. That's gonna have to happen.
And by the way, just to be fair, adults will have to have their flu shots uh, because with COVID-19 and the flu at the same time uh, in the fall, um, we could easily have problems where people are getting flu thinking it's COVID-19, but because they didn't protect themselves from the flu. So separate from kids, adults have the same problems and we need to be aware of that. Have they announced when the new flu shot was coming out? No, uh, they, oh. it usually comes out sometime in, uh, in late August, September, um, but it isn't quite clear. The entire world is trying to work on a, on a vaccine. So it's not yeah. quite clear who is working on, um, on the vaccine for flu. That's for the H1N1 um, virus. We already had a severe uh, epidemic and pandemic around it uh, for people to deal with. But I do need to move to the other part of it. Aside okay. from making sure the kids have their vaccinations and that they have their well care checks to make sure that they're okay, um, which by the way could be done by telehealth, um, et cetera, like we're doing. Right. The, pro the issue for COVID-19 is there are still no, approved, no FDA approved indications for drugs to treat COVID-19, zero. Now, remdesivir uh, it has been shown to have benefit, but only in hospitalized patients who have very serious, severe disease. And what uh, remdesivir does is not cure the COVID-19, but rather uh, so that um, it decreases length of stay in the intensive care unit and on uh, ventilators for about four days. So it mm. does have an impact on the healthcare system, um, and that's terribly important, but it's not a cure. Um, it's not. Now, how do kids get it? Because there are so few kids, they still are there, they still could have an issue. And uh, in that case, the, um, the uh, kids can mm -hmm. get a remdesivir if they're in the hospital, if they have severe disease, um, et cetera, and they can get it through an FDA emergency use authorization or through a compassionate use program. So kids can still get it. The uh, hospital and the physicians need to apply so that they can give it to kids through one of these programs versus mm -hmm. what they're doing with, with adults, okay? Mm -hmm. the, at the end of the day, we still come back to the same problem. There's insufficient data uh, in order to recommend anything else. Um, there's problems with regard to having any data to know what um, might be working, what, no, what might not be working. And so we're left with the fact that aside from not testing children, we also don't have a lot of children who are sick, so we can't test it. And when they have done, most of them are case reports, which means I had one patient I described what happened with that one patient, and uh, so we're, I, it's difficult to try and generalize that to an entire population of kids because case reports are only indicative of something that we want to research further. We want to get more information rather than being definitive that that's the answer and that somehow we have to address it. So the story for kids is supportive care, right? Um, dealing with um, the fact that the basics had to have been done with prevention mechanisms, 
deal with the fact that um, they have to follow the same preventive care as for adults. And if they get really sick, it's about supportive care with an opportunity to get a remdesivir or, or, or uh, you know, have that kind of treatment, but it's not a cure. Is there, is there a way to um, maybe through some kind of um, marketing plan to ensure that more kids are being tested to help support these, uh, or just to help to gather more data and to understand this a little more? Well, I think people are trying, but the level of testing in the United States is still not sufficient. Mm -hmm. It's not as frequent. Um, the problem, of course, with testing and then waiting seven days or longer to get a result means that the test isn't terribly helpful because what you want out of the test is to know that there is a burden of disease in a given population. You can then do contact uh, testing to, to ask people that uh, were around them so that you have a way to try and contain uh, the disease. But the longer that you have to wait in order to find out what the uh, result is, the less mm -hmm. valuable that piece, uh, that piece of information is. So right. not unlike what happens with adults, kids have the same problem. And eventually, uh, kids will have to be tested for all of this because there is sufficient evidence that they may be asymptomatic, but they are carrying it and they can carry it to susceptible adults, uh, immunocompromised, comorbid people who have multiple diseases, elderly people, things like that. Those stinking kids, you can't trust them. You can't. <laughs> you can't trust your own kids, Alex? No, that's why they're not leaving the house. <laughs> but um, uh, what, what are some risks? I mean, we talked about treatments. What are some risks when it comes to COVID-19 in children? Yeah, uh, effectively, we've got two kinds. I just talked about one of them, and the major risk is that if they don't get their vaccinations, they're at risk to have some very serious viral diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera. Those are serious. Um, they can kill children. There's a whole mm -hmm. history of them. And so as a result of that, that prevention mechanism becomes a key factor. Now, the other part of it, is something that's a very serious uh, disease. Um, it's called um, uh, multi pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome, temporarily associated with SARS-CoV-2. All of that mouthful is a disease <laughs> that affects multiple organs. And mm -hmm. it's very serious, and it can kill people. This is not a joke. It's um, a very serious uh, disease. It has been noted, it was originally noted in England, and it's now been seen in the U.S., in France, etc. So it's not, a, it's not a localized thing. It's only happening in one place. It's happened in multiple places uh, around the world. But this is very serious, and because it affects heart and kidneys and uh, skin and uh, uh, etc., you're dealing with a, a disease that you don't just treat and treat the heart or treat the kidneys or treat the, the skin or otherwise, you have to support it for everyone. The bad news about it is there's no cure. So yeah. it's been identified, but uh, uh, known as PMIS, but um, the, the key feature of it is 
you can't just give them a shot. You can't give them a tablet or capsule and somehow that's gonna solve it. It's all supportive care. It's trying to protect them. You may be giving them uh, corticosteroids along with it. Um, people have talked about dexamethasone, which is surprising because it's um, uh, COVID-19 is a respiratory illness. And typically you would use corticosteroids for people with a respiratory illness. So it wouldn't be too outside of, um, of the world to think that that also is being used. But uh, kids who have this are very seriously ill. They need to have supportive care across multiple organs with the hope that they don't die. And uh, in that regard, they're, they're addressing a problem that um, isn't seen in a lot of kids, thankfully. Um, yeah. It has symptoms, once again, of fever, belly pain, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, headaches, and confusion. And unfortunately, the result of the confusion and other things may extend longer than the disease itself. Mm. So we're dealing with uh, something that is uh, very serious, requires hospitalization, requires uh, treatment in a neonatal ICU or in a pediatric ICU, um, and it's multi-organ disease. So you're trying to deal with supporting all of these organs that are being attacked by this disease that is associated with COVID-19. And that becomes a real, a real problem and not unlike uh, what we see. So but, but in, risk. But um, in all, if you get your vaccinations, you make sure your kids get their wellness checks, you could avoid this PMIS. Yeah, well, you, I, I'm not saying you're gonna avoid it. What I am saying is, is that kids, as we've indicated, do um, in general stay healthy. If they get disease, it's in a much milder form based on symptoms, mm -hmm. and therefore they get better, e uh, faster and easier than do adults. If they get sick, then hopefully um, they're, they're supportive and the supportive care can handle it. But then there's always the risk and the concern of this uh, PMIS that can be very severe and that you have to address. So the good news is kids um, may be asymptomatic but carry it. They, if they become asymptomatic, it's a much uh, less severe disease than in adults. And if they get sick, unfortunately, they get very sick. Right, right. Well, that's a uh, that's not good news. <laughs> it is. I wanted some good news, Doctor Stern. <laughs> the good news is is that for the first time that I can think of, um, laboratories and countries all over the world are coming together trying to mm -hmm. find cures for the vaccine. That's a very positive step. That cooperation is terribly important. We certainly don't want to stop that cooperation uh, because uh, people are trying to come together with, with um, solutions, talking about solutions, trying to find solutions of what to do. Um, and as a result of that, in a very positive way, healthcare um, at, in, a, in a, a cooperative effort is much better healthcare than healthcare individually trying to deal with one-off kind of problems. And I can say that both personally as well as professionally. Um, I've dealt with people who are very sick. There's nothing attractive about being very sick, zero. Um, and there's um, 
nothing attractive about having a patient or patients who are one-offs who are sick and not having any recourse. If you have recourse and you have teams and you have people that are working on it, even people that are working on it in different countries and the rest, then we have a chance in order to deal with disease. And that's critically important. It's why we have right. the World Health Organization. It's why we have the CDC. It's why we have all of these organizations so that we have data to communicate, to, um, to uh, uh, cooperate, to share, so that what I'm learning can be taught to someone else, what they're learning can be taught to me. And as a result of that, everybody uh, benefits from what goes on. And we can't, we can't deny that in any way. It's critically important. See, and that, there we go. That's some good news right there. <laughs> yeah, we, it, it's good to know that in a crisis like this, because it is a crisis, it's a pandemic that affected the whole world, that everybody could come together and try to get this thing eradicated. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, that that's it for our discussion today, really. Um, um, yeah, I think that's it. Any, anything else you'd like to add before we go? No, just everybody stay healthy, follow the rules, um, whether you like it or you don't like it, wear mm -hmm. face protection, stay socially distant, wash your hands. There's a reason for it. And um, you're helping me. I'm helping you. Everybody's helping together so we can get this done. Um, I know it's been politicized, but this isn't a political argument. This is a public health argument. Um, and the overall issue is to keep me safe, to keep you safe, to keep our family safe so that we can go on and enjoy our lives. All right, absolutely. Okay, and um, thank you all for listening. That's it for this week's topic. Uh, we would like to remind you to go to ProPharmaConsultants.com. We have a free information page called RxInfoX. Also, um, we'll, we will be attaching a link to the Pharmacy Benefit News that is written by Dr. Stern himself on a biweekly basis. And it covers this topic as well. So um, we'll make sure that M puts it up uh, along with this episode. And um, that's it for this week. We'll see you guys next week.